Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2017 and the first we got this of the new year. This is episode 149. I can't believe we've made it this far and we have so many more to go. You know what else we have coming up is January 14th. That's a Sunday in San Francisco, California as part of SF Sketchfest. We are doing a live show. It is a double bill with our friends at the Craigslist podcast, Craig and Carla Kukowski. Their guest is Busy Phillips. Our guests were so excited about this. Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher. We are so excited to have them do a live show. If you've never been to a live show before, they are the most fun you can possibly have. And that is asked and answered. You can get information and get tickets at sfsketchfest.com. But for now, please enjoy episode 149 of We Got This with Mark and Hal. Hello, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. Since the dawn of humanity, one issue has gone unsettled. With the fate of the world in the balance, we're here to settle once and for all. Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. That's right. Don't worry, everyone. We got this. Podcast should have a theme song. Podcast should not have a theme song. Yes, they should. No, they shouldn't. They sound good. Yeah, but people are just going to skip past it. Hmm. You know what? You're right. We got this. All right, Mark. All right, Hal. This is this is a big one. This is the silent smackdown. That's right. This is I'm I'm very excited about this episode. It's uh, so silent. I'm not going to say anything. That's right. That's right. Oh no, uh, uh, we have chosen poorly as to our <laughs> guest today. <laughs> that's right. Uh, here to help us decide between Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton is a comedy legend in his own right, uh, and and a friend, Paul Dooley, and hosting us in his home. How about that? Yeah. That's so nice of you. Thanks for joining us. But as soon as this podcast is over, you'll be out the door. Just pick That's us fair. up and throw us out. Oh, no. Out. We're just going to wander around and look at all the wonderful wall painting in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's amazing. These walls are painted fantastically. They're frescoes. I love it. Yeah. Is it a fresco uh, if it's inside? A guy was visiting uh, about 10 years ago, uh, and he is a Broadway actor. He had the lead in a couple of musicals. And uh, we were talking about um, our house and he said, I just redid my grandmother's kitchen. He lives out here, but he works on Broadway, and he's also a set designer. Mm-hmm. She said, I would like it to look like a, a, a kitchen in Tuscany 100 years ago. So I said, give us that. So this is what he did. He did a fantastic oh. job. It's rag painting ah, up in the corners. Sure, there. yeah. There's a bird up there. There's a butterfly over here. I feel like, I do feel a bit it's like very, I'm in Disneyland. Very, very, the colors of like a sienna, you know, mm-hmm. that sienna color. I love it. Well, thank he, you for having us he here. He did the mural, too. Oh. I hope you folks listening will appreciate <laughs> yeah. the mural. I, you know, I don't even need to describe it. I think yeah. everybody who's listening knows what it looks yeah, like. You all you can, can tell. see it right now in your mind's eye. Yeah, they all know what Tuscany looks like. Yeah. Exactly. So so Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, you, you're a huge fan. I, I reached out to you and said, you know, what are the things you want to discuss? He said, I love silent comedies, particularly Buster Keaton, but also Charlie yeah, Chaplin. All of them. So, I mean, tell me about your relationship to these two comedians and silent comedy in general? When I was 15, I was a poor kid and I didn't have anything special, but a guy was in the same class. His family owned a restaurant and and he had all kinds of toys. He had a big record collection, LPs and jazz. He had a eight millimeter projector with a little screen. He sent away to a place called Black Hawk in Chicago for a dollar or something. He'd send it to you and you'd send it back. So he brought me to his house one afternoon after school, and he shows me these guys. Not features, but mostly he had the shorts. 
These are the eight, he had these on eight millimeter reels. Eight millimeter out of Chicago. Wow. I don't know if they're still there or not, but they, for many years, there were a place you could get things like this. So I saw Keaton, I saw Chaplin, I saw Silent Laurel and Hardy, Silent W.C. Fields, because he did some science mm-hmm. as well, uh, Harry Langdon and Harold Lloyd. And rating them, I thought, um, I, I like Keaton best, Chaplin next, to Harry Langdon, whose movies weren't very good all the way through, but has some great set pieces in it, and he's absolutely fabulous paint. Someone who seems to be like four years old. And I put the mental age of Harry Langdon as three or four years old, and, and Stan Laurel at maybe 12, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I give the mental age of people like Adam Sandler, you know. What's their mental age? Yeah. Uh, or Mike and Elaine are like a hundred, you know, whatever. Oh yeah. <laughs> They're way up there. It's nice to see one that goes the opposite direction <laughs> rather than their mental age being way lower. Yeah. Mike Nichols and Elaine May, they're. Well, the farther back you go, the more comedy was aimed at a, a common denominator, like in vaudeville mm-hmm. and all those places. Right. But they're always intellectual comics in, uh, in vaudeville too, who had their following. A guy named Fred Allen, who later was a big name on radio. Sure. Right. Uh, was very, very, very smart. But anyway, so I saw them and I fell in love with Keaton. I, I didn't know why because I was 15. What do you know at that age about anything? So 30 years later, I work with him in a commercial for two days. <laughs> and what could be better? Because all through that time, I'm collecting his films and showing them to friends and recruiting people who don't know his work. Sure. Creating Team Keaton. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, not too long ago, went out to uh, Pickway or Piqua, Kansas, where he was born. It should be pronounced Piqua, but it's Pickway to the Pickway. Yeah, sure. But he was he was born there, but he's just passing through and born. One yeah, night. He, this was and just, yeah, this just happened to be where the uh, right. the family was. And they weren't even in vaudeville. They were in a medicine show. Mm-hmm. They weren't even as good as vaudeville might become. But anyway, uh, I went back and. And a guy named James Karen, who, who knew Keaton well, invited me back there. And I, I was expected to do a little speech, so I did. And uh, one of the things I said was, because at that time I had to say to myself, why is it I like him so much? Why is it as strong as it is? And I said to them that uh, the thing about Keaton never wanting to be in a fight, he always ran away. Mm-hmm. And somehow we loved him running away. <laughs> right. It didn't have any uh, altercations with people. I mean, he would get in trouble and something would happen to him, but he would just—he would never fight back. Really. Yeah, somehow he made an entire Civil War movie and never actually fought. <laughs> never hurt anyone. Yeah, exactly. Not on purpose. It, it's only it, when his sword went flying. And he's one of those guys. I think out of the two, people now would probably be more familiar with Charlie Chaplin than Buster Keaton, although they might know who he was. But if you look at a guy like Jackie Chan who does all these kung fu films where he's constantly running away from the fight, that's directly, and, and he said this before, that's influenced by Buster Keaton. I saw him just on uh, Colbert, I think, the other night, you know, plugging a new movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've heard him say many times how he, he drew from the old silent comedians. And Chuck Jones with his animation. And who's the other guy? Tex Avery with mm-hmm. his animation. They all looked at that stuff. The Roadrunner has, Roadrunner learned things from Keaton, you know. How to run away and, yeah. and run into a wall or whatever it was. So what did you learn from Keaton? Uh, well, I don't know if I learned it from him, but I've always uh, been a minimalist in terms of comedy. Mm-hmm. I felt if you could, uh, if there was a scale, I used to call it a Colgate scale, one to ten, mm-hmm. back in the old radio days for some reason. 
If you can get a 10 laugh and you have to do a lot of work for it, it's a bigger victory if you can do less work and get a 10 laugh. <laughs> you know, and actually Chaplin, like most people don't realize this, both of them are just slapstick artists who fell down or threw pies or whatever. Right. Well, the truth is Chaplin, both Chaplin and Keaton were smart enough to to do a big gag, and the next thing they do is just very infinitesimal, like lifting an eyebrow or something with the smallest of gestures, because mm-hmm. they knew that a big gag followed by a big gag and it keeps it's a losing proposition. So you do smaller gags, medium size, then a few big ones. But they understood that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I I got it from him, but it's probably why I was attracted to him because when I started performing, I would always want to do less and. Instead of aiming down to my audience, aim above them and let them come up there. And if you lose a few laughs, so what, you know? Uh, but, uh, when I did this show recently at, uh, down at the fringe, uh, I got a kind of an epiphany. It's, uh, it was the theaters called Sacred Fools and it was mm-hmm. on Santa Monica Boulevard and Lillian Way. Mm-hmm. A block away on Lillian Way was his old studio, now a parking lot with a brass plate on the street saying, Buster Keaton's old studio. Wow. <laughs> then the stage manager told me that in the building we were in years ago was not a, a theater, but a series of offices, and Buster had his office there, not on the set, but in another office. So all these coincidences of me being so nuts about him. Then she told me that the last night, she says, sometimes the staff say they see the ghost of Buster Keaton here. Wow. Do you think the ghost of Buster Keaton saw your show? <laughs> I hope so. I hope he liked it. Yeah, me too. I'm so, sure he did. So then I say a thing in my one-man show. It made me think a lot about it. And so I say, in spite of everything else, uh, uh, I knew there was something more, something more personal about Buster Keaton, some sort of a connection. And I said, uh, my father was a man of few words, and I show a picture of my father looking very depression grim. As everybody looked in a picture. <laughs> mm, yeah. Old pictures are always very serious. There aren't a lot of yeah, very happy a depression pictures. Yeah. No, no. Because they think it's a big deal to be in front of a camera. Right. And you have to look your best. And so, to, uh, so um, my father's a man of few words. And then I said, Buster was a man of no words. And I morphed them. I mean, the, the visuals I had morphed them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they did look a little alike. Then I say, I never saw my father smile, which is true. Same thing wow. with Buster. Then I realized that Buster had kind of become my role model once I was 15. My non-smiling surrogate father who made me smile, <laughs> made me love him. And I said, and just lately after what I found out at the Sacred Fool's Theater, I had this idea, and I know this is crazy, but maybe in a past life, I was in vaudeville. I was in silent movies. Maybe I knew Keaton. Would make a lot of sense. So it's a whole wrap up of my I like that my show. Yeah, um, it, I like that you mentioned that about um, Keaton's uh, demeanor because he, they call him the Great Stone Face. Right. But I think that that's kind of a misnomer. It's not that he's doing nothing and you're painting things onto it. He's doing something. He's he. In fact, there's one gag where someone burns a hole into a tablecloth, and he literally he looks through a tablecloth, and he's literally acting with one eye, and you can see everything that he's doing. Uh, well, also, his body was- his body was a 
we think of actors using their mm-hmm. eyes and their mouth as expression, uh, things to make an expression. Yeah. But if you really are in command of your body, you can make all kind of, uh, you can say all kind of things with your body. But he somehow made you realize what he might be feeling without even using the body all that much. He would just do a very sly take. He never did a double take. He did a lot of single takes. We just, mm-hmm. there's a wonderful moment in the general where he sidetracks it. Uh, one of the cars on the train, it gets in a sidetrack and he mm-hmm. runs and gets back on his, uh, gets back on um, the engine. Now he looks out the front and that thing is back again. He sidetracked it off on one side. <laughs> now that's in front of him again, a, a box car. And he just does a take, which is nothing. It's like. He just stares and sees it. But How'd you, you like, get everything. How do you, you folks exactly like that? Saying. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You gave our listening audience the Jack Benny moment right there. <laughs> I think you guys all saw it. Similar to the fresco. You can all the audience knows what's going on. You know on. what you saw. Um, you underestimate them if you think they don't catch on. Or they have to come up. Here, and here's the mistake. People think educated people catch on to things better. But the truth is there's, there's a thing called emotional intelligence. If you mm-hmm. never went to school or got a degree, everyone understands emotional intelligence because you learn it as a child. If your mother comes in the room and she's just fought with the father, her body is full of energy. She's full of attention. But infants know this stuff. Okay, all the kids growing learn everything about their parents' emotions just by watching. So here's the thing I first felt about Keith, uh, Chaplin and Keaton right after I'd seen him at 15 was Chaplin is obviously a genius and there's mm-hmm. nobody, there's no way to contest that. But I always thought Chaplin was smarter than me, smarter than the audience, smarter than anybody else in the movie with him. And his comedy, which was brilliant, was also a kind of showing off, kind mm-hmm. of a, um, I don't know, look at me kind of thing. Yeah. And he did it so great, it didn't matter. But Keaton, you never thought was bragging about his comedy abilities. You never thought he was showing off. You just thought he was behaving. And he was so subtle. It was just amazing. It didn't matter what was happening. He was subtle. Well, he was a more generous performer anyway. Um, and maybe let's launch into some of these because, uh, we've got our, uh, our list here of, uh, some of the criteria that we're looking at because I know you have a relationship with, uh, Buster Keaton. Um, and I don't, I, I don't want us to, uh, we're just good friends. Just <laughs> exactly. I don't um, know. That painting over there says differently. I know you people can't see yeah, it, but it is, you guys, there is <laughs> a painting behind profane. Paul that is, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's something, but it's also touching. <laughs> um, That's why it's profane. So let's, uh, let, I've got a few different criteria here that I'd look, like to look at. And that's one, um, that I think is a good, that's a good place to start would be, uh, the storytelling style of the two of them. But, but before we launch it, I'm just curious what your, like, I'll tell you my very brief background, which is mm-hmm. I had not seen a full Chaplin film or full Buster Keaton film until, about 20 years ago when the first AFI 100 Greatest Films came out. And then I very quickly saw Gold Rush, Limelight, Modern Times. Uh, I went and watched The Great Dictator. And then that got me into, well, I should go watch Buster Keaton. So I mm-hmm. watched mm-hmm. Sherlock, Steamboat Bill Jr. Two um, of my favorites. Yeah. I mean, it's – so it's – as somebody who's always grown up a huge fan of comedy, it's interesting to go back and see – even if they didn't invent some of the bits they were doing, they were taking things from the vaudeville circuit and bringing them to a wider audience and sort of etching them in. They were helping build the foundation of pretty much all comedy from mm-hmm. the early 20th century on. 
And because Buster worked in pantomime in vaudeville, he was perfect for the movies. And uh, um, Chaplin came from Music Hall, which is the vaudeville of, in England. He was part of a group called the Mummers, which was a young group of young boys who did pantomime sketches. Uh, uh, they already had their training for silent movies, which was perfect. Yeah. You know the story about uh, it really touches me. I always choke up when I talk to people about Keaton. He has he has become the star of his own family's routine. He used to be the three Keatons, and he became uh, Buster Keaton with uh, Joe and Myra. Mm-hmm. And eventually became Buster Keaton, had his own vaudeville act and mm-hmm. pantomime because the father was an alcoholic and eventually they weren't together. Well, it's tough when you are, uh, because he actually, he was thrown around the stage so much that they had put a luggage, a luggage handle into his costume that his father could pick him up by. And if you're doing, and you've been doing these physical bits since you're three years old. Yeah. And it's in your DNA. If your dad's drinking right before going on stage, it's like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, we got this well-timed comedy bit that we do. You can't be getting drunk and then trying to do our timing. Well, there's there are stories that uh, that Joe, his father, got mad at a drummer and threw his kid at him. <laughs> because he's used to throwing him uh, yeah. with a handle on the thing. Another time he threw it at a guy in the front row. He just... Uh, yeah. He was used to that. They, they, another way they build the act was Buster the Human Mop. <laughs> I saw that. And the, uh, the most dangerous act you'll ever see was one of the. Now, father used to stand on a table. Uh, Buster put it in one of his uh, shorts, stand on a, a table and had a very long rope with like a medicine ball on the end of it or something. And he would swing it and let the rope out until it had a very, very wide ranging arc. And Buster's job was to be hit by it or miss it. So he would, he would miss it a lot and duck and jump over it and he would just make it work that way. And then he would probably do something like, you know, <laughs> he'd say, well, that's over. And, yeah. then the, and then if father, would, the ball would hit him in the back of the head and he'd do a flip and land, but it's all part of the deal. His father also used to throw him at the upstage uh, cyclorama at the drop <laughs> made of canvas, a sky or something. That seems like of all of them, if I was Buster, I'd be like, oh man, just keep throwing me against the psych, man. Yeah. That's a, that's like throwing me into the, into the mat in wrestling. That's right. And because, uh, because of depth perception, the audience doesn't see it. When he hits, it looks like a solid thing. It's the sky or a, <laughs> a cityscape. But when he hits, there's give in the canvas. So he used to slide down that canvas, run down to the footlights and take a bow. But if he ever smiled after anything, the father would say, face, face, face. And so he talked him into her, you know, Invented the fact that he didn't smile in his comedy because he learned it worked for him. He learned it got more laughs than if he yeah, if he was laughing. That's a lot. right. Although uh, whenever I started doing stand up, I would never smile or laugh mm-hmm. at things, and it's a little bit of how I am in life. It's got I was bonded with my father before I met, yeah. <laughs> before I knew Keaton, but bonding with the both of them, I have a kind of a tendency to be a deadpan uh, a comedian. So I like to do less and less and less. Smaller the better. Well, it's working right now. Yeah. You guys, he is, his face has not moved this entire time. In fact, he looks like he's mad at Mark. He yeah. might be angry at I'm me a right pissed now. pissed at both of you. Oh, man. Me? Well, let's, let's talk a little. We've talked about Buster Keaton's early years. Let's Actually, talk a little about. I smile because I'm talking about Keaton a little. There you oh, go. There you go. Uh, let's talk a little about Chaplin's early years. Um, Chaplin was my jam growing up. I've always been a huge Charlie Chaplin fan. Did you yeah. dress up as him? For I Halloween? did dress up him as, as him for Halloween one year. Uh, it was the best Halloween costume I ever did. Uh, 
I had a we had a pizza place where I grew up and that would play old Charlie Chaplin shorts. Mm-hmm. Uh Charlie Chaplin and our gang and and some Keaton as well, but it was the Chaplin one specifically, uh just in the kids' room at this pizza place. It was very smart to have a enclosed glass soundproof room to put all the kids in, play old silent comedies, and then the grown-ups can sit out and eat. And they love Laurel and Hardy too. Kids. Oh yeah. They had a the real best. renaissance back in the old fifties and sixties on television because they need product during the day, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. kids loved that. They were just the perfect entertainers for kids. Um, they were dumber than kids. <laughs> <laughs> sure, finally. Laurel's about twelve, and uh, Hardy's maybe thirteen. That's right. <laughs> yeah, not much older, but it ju- it does make him the smart one of the pair. Yeah. But I thought, uh, you know, pound for pound, those two guys are the most lovable, affectionate. Uh, least violent or least uh, mean yeah. of any comedian because the the underbelly of almost all comedy has a certain amount of hostility in it, especially mm-hmm. in nightclubs. But those guys are just two guys who would irritate each other, but they loved each other. You could <laughs> just see it. Yeah, and they were like they were they were described by Ollie as we're two peas in a pod, you know, <laughs> and no one will ever be the wiser. Yeah, it's it's always uh, it's another fine mess you've gotten us into. Not another fine mess, and now I'm going to punch you in the face for five yeah. minutes. No, um, and also uh, here's another little thing that in my crazy mind about comedy I arrived at, which is a perfect time to talk about it. Uh, I noticed that most of the comedians I like uh, have a way of not wanting to leave the stage or not wanting to leave the frame of a movie. They don't just, uh, they don't just leave. There's no just leaving. Mm-hmm. They want it to be more important. They want an exit line or an exit moment. So Busser, before he ran, would always put one leg out horizontally first. He would just put one leg out and then run. Mm-hmm. A chaplain, of course, did the thing where he goes around the corner on one foot. Yeah. Uh, Jackie Gleason did that move where he claps both hands, puts his elbows out and puts his leg up and kicks. And away we go. Mm-hmm. And that's an exit. Then they extrapolate it to Fred Flintstone, who turns into wheels on his feet. But he doesn't leave right away. The wheels no. stay there. <laughs> then he goes. And then he goes. Sure. Pepe Le Pew, or yeah. uh, the, the cat that Pepe Le Pew was chasing, always left a, a little smoke yeah. cloud. Yeah. So they all picked up on that. Probably wasn't articulated as a kind of a, a pre, uh, what do you call it, a, a penultimate move. Then I started thinking, it's what the villains in the old melodramas used to do, where they say, you must pay the rent. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't just say it and leave. They would say that and take their cloak and throw it across their shoulder and give that a beat mm-hmm. and then go. So it was this this uh, next to last thing you did that got you the exit hand, so to speak. Well, it's anyway. So f- the first time I ever had an overcoat, it was this is in college. <laughs> I had my dad's overcoat. He didn't need it. He got a new one. And I wore it to like a formal event. And all I could say to everybody was, I feel like with this, I should throw one piece over and say, there's no Christmas this year. And then just throw it off and leave. <laughs> like you want, it's baked in. And if you want to really look important, don't you, you don't put your arms in the sleeves, you know. You, oh yeah. Do you it like drape that. it over you. Look, there's, we don't have the same classy old clothes that, uh, these guys had. No. And watching these movies, there was one thing that I, I realized a hat was way more, than just a, a thing that you wore out. The the fact that you wore a hat outside and not inside meant that the hat could be used to, A, get out of a situation politely. Mm-hmm. If I'm talking to you, Hal, and I'm like, um, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I grab my hat, 
you know I'm about to leave. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and also someone can hand you your hat when they want you to go. It's the equivalent of the, off you go then. Well, Bill Irwin, who <laughs> I don't met, have that anymore. Bill Irwin, the great clown that I met on Popeye, because he mm-hmm. did that movie also. Uh, one of the bits he used to do, which is not his, it goes way back in clowning. It might mm-hmm. even have been in silent movies, is you drop your derby or your top hat. And then as you go for it, you use your foot to kick it away. Yeah. But the audience doesn't notice the foot because you're reaching for it. Yeah. They're looking at your arm. And he put that gag in, in Popeye very early in the first few uh, moments. Listeners, if you have not ever seen Bill Irwin, please see some Bill Irwin. He's uh, one of the world's greatest. And to watch him walk down the spiral staircase that he keeps inside his trunk is one of the more impressive. He <laughs> not only goes down comedy. it, he makes a turn and goes down further. <laughs> That's right. <It's> unbelievable. <laughs> I have something you guys should look at. Uh, when Altman uh, met these guys from from uh, San Francisco, they were part of a thing called the Pickle Family Circus. Mm-hmm. It was a little homemade circus without animals, but you know whatever they had, it was. And three clowns were the stars. One was Bill Irwin, one was a guy named Larry Pisoni, and another was Jeff Hoyle. And they were all Jeff Hoyle's parents had been in a music hall when he was a kid, and they were all true old timey clowns. And uh. They got cast in uh, Popeye. And um, my point is that after that, the other guys stayed around San Francisco and did mime, and they probably made a few dollars here and there. Right. But Bill went to New York, and Bill had always studied dance, and a lot of his comedy has dance in it, movement, which is so graceful. You see, it's 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 um, interpreted. It's uh, it's it's uh, one of the antecedents of it is dance, you know, because it's yeah. graceful. And the W.C. Fields says uh, Chaplin was a damn ballet dancer. That was his idea of it. Yeah. And both he and Buster had enough uh, grace of the body that they had the bodies of dancers because mm-hmm. they could do anything they wanted to with it. And Chaplin seemed to be more about uh, technically learning what to do with his. And Buster Keaton just beat his up in front of the camera in yeah. big, wide shots. Yeah. And he often made himself very small in the frame. Mm-hmm. He's always chased by 30 cops or something. <laughs> yeah. And they talk about his composition. So if he puts himself, and he was the director, in a picture, in a frame, instead of making himself in the center, which is often how you compose something, the most important thing is in the middle. Painters know that if you put it off to one side, it's a bit more interesting. So if you think of him sitting on that train that's about to take off on the wheels. Oh, yeah. He's just the one side of the picture, including the tunnel. And they used to... Uh, used to always put himself in, he understood, you know, uh, artistically, visually, how to place things in the frame. I have a picture in my bedroom of him that I brought to the set, and he signed it. He's in a kind of a parachute rig, and there's wires coming down or ropes coming down, and he's hanging sort of upside down with a helmet and boots on. It was from actually a talking picture, but mm-hmm. I found it somewhere, and it's in sepia tone, so it's a great-looking picture. So I brought it to the set on the second day of our commercial. And he signed it, but he could have signed it anywhere, but he signed it on a diagonal to match the lines of the <laughs> of course, the parachute coming down. But that's how his mind works, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, artistically, he knew that's how you signed it. Well, you look at his him standing on top of the engine in uh, The General as well with that perfect lean that he's got. And in yeah. Steamboat Bill, that uh, perfect... Mm-hmm. Whether or not his body is leaning, his posture is always wonderful. <laughs> Yes. 
And you remember how he leaned against the wind in Steamboat Bill? He's, mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's jumping in the air to get ahead of the wind, but he goes back. <laughs> he jumps in the air, <laughs> tries to beat the wind. And that's the thing where it falls into a bed and the bed takes off with the wind and goes all over town. Yeah. And oh, it's also the, where uh, the uh, the front of the building falls and yeah. the top window falls perfectly around him. Yeah. But and, he, uh, he does a bit in college. At the very beginning, he's addressing uh, as he a high school it. graduate. He keeps leaning, and the the all the academics behind him keep leaning <laughs> whatever direction he also goes the, to listen to the him. Going through the window thing he had done in a short earlier, right? Because he revived certain things from his shorts and his features. It did seem like he wanted that bit to get bigger and bigger. Uh, for those who haven't seen these bits, uh, this is the famous Buster Keaton standing as the entire wall, the entire side of a house falls the on top story, of him. The second story. And he story. goes to, he, the second story window is his yeah. savior. And you have to calculate that pretty cleverly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in one week they did it. And then, uh, was it one week? I uh, think so. Yeah. And then this just epic half ton. <laughs> Half of a house falling on him in Steamboat Bill. Now they do it with CGI. Sure. Yeah. And this uh, guy, this, that was what was great about. It looked like a heavier building. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, we've, we came here to decide between Chaplin and Keaton. And I do keep finding myself going, the great thing that Keaton does is, <laughs> uh, so let's try and dive into, uh, some of this, some of these differences, um, which we've been going over a little bit, uh, and we gave a little bit of, uh, Buster Keaton's backstory. Charlie Chaplin born in England, uh, which is why he was able to be knighted. So he is Sir Charles Spencer Chaplin, came from music halls as a kid. Uh, he predated Keaton a little bit. Uh, he started at Keystone in 1914 and then annually got a better contract and made better movies but for ten, about four years. Ten times as much. He'd go oh, yeah. from a hundred a week to a thousand to ten thousand. To eventually a million dollar salary with first national pictures. Yeah. Wow. Um and then uh created United Artists in nineteen nineteen with Mary Pickford, Doug Fairbanks, and uh D.W. Griffith, yep. who distributed Keaton's work. Right. Um do you know what, what, let's talk about the relationship between them. Yeah. While we've talked a little bit about their backstory. Well, people don't talk about them being pals so much. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they know each other and I'm sure they were the same events together and I'm sure they talked business if they were mm-hmm. going to be distributed by, <clears throat> by United Artists. But I don't see, occasionally there's a picture of the two of them together with other people. Right. Socially. And Chaplin did, uh, um, borrow him and use him in limelight in a very small scene. Right. I understand there's more footage of that than actually ended up in that. that. Man, I thought that whole movie could, I would just watch the two of them in a dressing room for an entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I could watch Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in a diner for an entirety of heat <laughs> as well. <laughs> there was a Life magazine article when Limelight came out, which I cut out was I was even 40 or 50 years old, whatever it was. But I'm still like cutting things out of the mm-hmm. magazines and newspapers sure. about certain people. <laughs> and the uh, chaplain was in the dressing room in the limelight and the collar came up to here and he's hiding behind a collar and he's sticking his head out. He's mugging to himself in the, in the dressing room. And I found it a great picture because he's really playing with it. Yeah. These are guys yeah. that would look at a thing and not see what everyone else saw. Absolutely. They would see a million possibilities. A friend of mine is uh, Donovan Scott, who was in Popeye playing Castor Oil, who's mm-hmm. Olive Oil's brother, who's a clown and a studied uh, commedia with a teacher up near San Francisco. And he said in that when the guy teaching commedia would teach the comedy, he would give an actor three props. Here's a ball, here's a stick, and here's a, a piece of paper. 
go in the room there with your partner, come back with a routine. So they all had to go in there and say, what are the properties of a ball? What mm-hmm. can it do? What can be done to it? What can you do with the stick? How can they interconnect? And that was how those lotsi, as they called them in mm-hmm. Comedia, are put together. Just what you can, if you hand them anything, you can make something funny out of it if you know what you're doing. Even two forks and dinner rolls? That's right. <laughs> like Chaplin did in Gold Rush? And he used to do that. He used to do that at parties before he put it into, into the gold rush. Oh, so many of his bits seem like things that he just would waggle his eyebrows at girls and then goof around <laughs> with. And they eventually wound up in his movies. Well, well he was, as did the girls. <laughs> he was as funny in his dinner parties as he was anywhere else. Yeah. He was the star of his own dinner parties, you know, because he's so inventive. He could do anything. Um, let's take a look at uh, some of the... Golden age masterpieces for each of these guys. Uh, Chaplin's lasted a lot longer. Chaplin, his beginning with his shorts, 1917, probably when the greatest of his shorts up through 1940, the great dictator. Would that be fair to say that's Chaplin's yeah, golden the, era? Yeah. And, um, and, for- the, and, and in the great dictator sound was already in, but he, and so he did a little sound effects, but he didn't really do much dialogue. Yeah. And Until the final scene, scene. With, with him as mm-hmm. the dictator, and dancing when he finally the made a big speech, yeah, yes, I just it's to me the, one of the differences between the two, and we'll get into this in a little mm-hmm. bit, is to me Chap, I, I associate Chaplin with satire, and I associate Keaton with parody a lot more. Which is not to say one is better than the other. It's just that's where my where my mind goes. Yeah. And the Great Dictator right. is the perfect example of great satire being done in the very moment when it was probably needed the most. Sure. Modern times is a satire on modernity. And then absolutely, Buster Keaton is doing things like he's making fun of with um, the, uh, the playhouse. He's yeah. poking fun at uh, the producer Ince, who puts himself in every role. So Buster Keaton plays every role in that movie. And it's way ahead of its time to do that. And he created some of those shots that hadn't been used before. Showing himself get out of a car six times, which is uh, if you watching that to think about the fact that that movie was made. And you in, don't see any cuts. They were doing it with mats over the over the lens. Really, you know how and you put a mat in there and you, you block off something. Mm-hmm. He would have a mat, and then another mat would be further in, and another mat would be further in. But I didn't even understand it, but I know it's done. <laughs> I know that. You, yeah, it's like uh, I know they do that magic trick with uh, filament. I have no idea how they do that magic trick with <laughs> filament, but that's what they use. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the, so let's talk about, so we, we've touched on the parody and satire. Uh, let's talk about the legacies of each of these two. Well, men. I think in the last 10, 12 years, uh, Keaton's had a bit of a renaissance. Mm-hmm. You may have noticed, you know, uh, you're younger than I am, but, uh, there was a time when they were both, uh, simultaneously working. They were both known all over the world. They didn't, uh, they could be in an Eskimo village. They could be in Africa. They'd be in South America, Tokyo, anywhere. Because they didn't have a language barrier. And they, mm-hmm. they were all very, very, very well known worldwide, including Laurel and Hardy and even Harry Langdon and Harold Lloyd. And to take him aside for a minute, he never impressed me as a, a funny guy. He always seemed to me be good at doing, uh, tricks and, and mm-hmm. uh, falls and physical effects and, Climbing up on the side of the building, right, of but course. it never left me with the idea that he's a great comedian. But of right. course, there were great jokes in there because he had guys who wrote for him. And he's walking down the street once and, uh, <laughs> one of his films and, uh, 
he got his hands up and there's a guy behind him with a gun. And uh, there's a turn in the road and he goes off in the turn and the guy walks through a field of corn or something. <laughs> I mean, the turn itself makes the guy go the yeah, wrong way right. or makes him go the wrong way. There's some very, very good gags. And he had a guy that worked with him who literally was a giant in a picture he made in Mexico. I mean, the guy was six foot nine or something, you know, huge, huge, you know, amazing looking caveman. And he made Harold Lloyd look like he was, you know, one foot tall. <laughs> but they all used uh, straight men who were tall, like Eric Campbell worked with Chaplin, big Germanic-looking yeah. guy. Oh, sure. And, and who's the one in uh, – uh, I'm sorry, continue. Max Wayne was in uh, – The Gold one, Rush, yeah. Gold Rush. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And he's about six foot four or five. And these were – yeah, because these were not tall guys. Who's the great big guy that worked with Keaton? Um he played the 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 police chief or whoever it was Kareem and the goat. It was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Sure. sure, Los Angeles Lakers legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, nobody look was... it up, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Great. Let's just say I know Slim Somerville was tall, mm-hmm. and he was a minor comic, but he was uh, before they were famous. Fatty Arbuckle was in the Keystone Cops, and so was Slim Somerville. Huh. And a I guy didn't know named... that uh, Fatty Arbuckle got his start there. Yeah, he was in the Keystone Cops. Mac for Max Wayne. And that's, uh, Fatty Arbuckle was the one who, uh, Buster Keaton was his sidekick for years and years before he got his. He helped own. Buster get into the film, film business. Um, oh, I was saying about 46th Street. They met on the street. Buster had left his family. He was now an individual act. He was booked into a Broadway review, I suppose, something like the Zeekville Follies mm-hmm. at a very good price, few thousand dollars for his act. He meets Arbuckle on 46th Street, which all made it personal to me because I know that street up and down walking those streets. And they have Eve's costumes in that block and all that stuff. And, uh, and he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing flickers is what they always called them in the old days. And he said, uh, no, I'm still doing, I'm working on a stage. I have this thing coming up. And so you want to come down to the, our studio over on 14th street, you take a look, see what I'm doing. So he goes down there, he watches it and he asks to borrow a camera, goes into a dark room and opens it up because Buster's like an engineer, mm-hmm. very mechanical. And figured out how it worked, you know, came back and said, uh, how would you like to have me work with you? Sure, we'd love to have you there. So for 75 a week, he turned down his Broadway gig because he saw the infinite possibilities of film where you're not hemmed in by the proscenium. Yeah. And you can go anywhere in the world and do anything. You can own horses or whatever you want. Which is different than what Chaplin did, which was set up the camera as an audience member. The camera was a witness to a proscenium show yeah, he had been doing. And, and they didn't, even then they didn't have dollying and panning. Right. Although D.W. Griffith started doing that even very early. But the way they did silent movies was a frozen, locked-in camera. Mm-hmm. Proscenium, and they'd leave the frame. It's great that, uh, yeah, that Keaton just decided, oh, the camera is one of my collaborators on this. My camera is going to, what can it do? What can't it do? What can I teach it to do? Um, Absolutely. But there's also something to uh to one AM, which is which is Charlie Chaplin as a drunk man coming home who's only all he wants is to get into bed. And for mm. twenty two minutes he <laughs> every possible thing I mean, including him trying to get out of the car, get money out of his pocket, get his coat out of the door. Uh but then once he walks into his home, you get an establishing shot of 
this set. And it's it just, just one big two story house. Yeah, it's like, oh, this is going to be a toy box. And there's very little. And in what that he did room. with that revolving table was oh my unbelievable. Yeah. Incredible. That, him trying to go up the stairs, uh, the, the. Do you ever see a thing called Unknown Chaplain? No. No. Uh, look it up. It's, uh, like a two hour documentary and it shows, it shows, uh, him doing multiple takes and how he changes things in each take. The physical stuff. One mm-hmm. of them is in a hotel lobby and you see it. There's a wheelchair and someone comes in here and you see the next take and the wheelchair is over there. He's changing the gags and improving the gags <laughs> and you see, that's true. It may be, uh, uh it may be, uh, who, who's the guy that does all the doc- documentaries? The Burns? famous, the famous guy. Burns Attenborough. Yeah. 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 Burns. Ken Burns. It might be Ken Burns. Okay. Unknown chaplain. Is I will. Okay. And you Any, see rehearsals and they, the narrator this. talks about it, you know. Yeah. It's terrific. That's, uh, that's another great thing that a great difference between the two of them too in their working styles. Um, that Buster Keaton, um, I know he did not do these technical takes as many times as Chaplin would do. No. He would do a stunt one time because yeah. they were pretty dangerous. Yeah. Many of the things that he did. Chaplin's stunts never looked dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he actually didn't fall down all that much. He just did a lot of great things with his body. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone was just talking to me recently who had just been introduced to see Chaplin doing that on skates. He's doing near the edge of the, the edge of the frame. And uh, below you see there's a, another story down below. You're in the second story. They say, how did he do that? He's, he's an inch away from going off the end. Nowadays, it would have been CGI. Right. Sure. I don't know how they did it. He I may have like just can, done it. You can say that for so many things, and it is unfortunate. Having done an episode of this podcast about practical effects versus digital effects, yeah, there is something wonderful about just a simple thing. There's a great scene in um, Payday, uh, the Chaplin short Payday. It's one of my all-time, maybe my all-time favorite Chaplin bit. Uh, do you remember with the bricks where he's a bricklayer? Yeah. Uh, and it's just, he's on the second floor and two guys on the ground floor are tossing bricks up to him and he's not looking. He's catching them and laying them perfectly. Catch it behind him, lay it perfectly. Uh, in, and in 10 per a second, he's doing this. He's catching him with his knees. He's catching him with his butt cheeks. He's, he's catching also, him with his feet. He's also a juggler because he's juggled in his pictures. I saw him juggling turkey drumsticks. Oh, and <laughs> well, I didn't realize watching this until someone said later, Oh, you know, they just ran that backwards. It's just Chaplin has a wall in front of him and he is putting a brick between his knees and dropping it. He's just throwing bricks that were laid perfectly in front of him and uh, down behind him. Well, there but were the things picture, they did on, they did beautiful. backwards to make yeah. it work, but the audience would never realize it. Yeah. Because this was still at a time when movies were magical. It's, it's interesting to see, uh, in college, Buster mm-hmm. Keaton gets accosted by a bunch of bullies who put him in a blanket and start throwing him into the air. And so they would, they would slow the film down to keep him in the air longer. Uh, and it, you have to sort of be looking for the first time I didn't notice. And then I started concentrating on it. Uh, but yeah, there were all sorts of, they, the, because they had no digital effects, yeah. they had to use whatever tricks they could to pull off bits and certain things because they weren't doing a ton of wire work. Now you know, they can't just keep him in the air; they have to roll the film to to a crawl almost to do it. And, a, and also, the speed of the film was all manual. They just mm-hmm. either slowed it down, undercranked, or overcranked. Sometimes they found that a chase was more fun when you undercranked and made it look faster, but certain things weren't. 
when I found Keaton, I, this guy was also a big fan. Mm-hmm. It was my college. My This uh, is your friend when you were 15. High school, you yeah. Found the, yeah. So as soon as we started talking about this, he had a camera, and we went out and started making silent movies. Of course. And I had one, which I put in some of in my one-man show. I cut it way down, but I had some of it in my one-man show. You see me pick up a pie and go like this and throw it. Then you see him in the next frame, and it appears on his face. And so I figured out that that can't be undercranked to make it go fast. We were using a modern camera, so Mm -hmm. you just set the speed. It has to be go slower so you see the pie here, then here, then here, then here. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it appears. Right. And in the very, very early uh, silent comedies, you'd see something like that happen. This just appeared. And so in my own little 15-year-old way, I started figuring out what they must have figured out, which is if you want it to be jerky, then you undercrank it more and you had to get a chase. Uh, and if you want to make something funny, which isn't funny, but you make it jerky by undercranking, yeah. it'll be a little funnier. But then if you have a love scene, you want to overcrank. So that it opposite, slows it so down. So it slows it down. So they learned that by trial and error. They had to. That's got to be no fun manual. as a kid to crack the code of the masters. Well, like, I was, oh, I see what they're doing. I figured out what it must be. And, uh, there are many more things probably that, uh, they figured out on the way. When you were, uh, when you were getting into these movies, I know that most of these were the eight millimeters, so it's a lot of shorts. Uh, yeah. nowadays though, when you look at it, do you, do you prefer the shorts or do you prefer the features? The shorts are, you know, a little, a little clunkier, but there's some crazy gags happening. Well, I'll tell you one thing that happens in a short, which is mm-hmm. 20 minutes sometimes, sometimes 15. Because it's packed into a short story, often the gags are closer together, mm-hmm. you know, and he doesn't have to have have quite such a long time to establish a story about a girlfriend or a mother-in-law, and that becomes more like normal movie making where you take time to draw out the story. But when you're just limited to building a house and the girl is just a prop, and the girl is also a prop in the general, by the way, everything's falling apart, people are shooting cannonballs through the freight uh, the box cars and, and she's, she's sweeping. sweeping yeah another time he's throwing logs onto the fire in the in, mm-hmm. the in the engine and she picks up a little piece about this big you know look like a pencil and she's throwing it in the fire and he goes he's doing something like uh, basically like oh boy you know mm-hmm. but he does it with his body I, or he stares at the audience i will say though it's he does have a better relationship i mean these these movies we can't hold um, you know, things from a different era to modern standards, I realize, but their relationship to women is very different. It yes. seems like, it seems to me like, well, um, they were props a lot. Generally, yeah. Uh, Chaplin just put, uh, pretty girls that he was, tr- that the tramp was trying to get. Yeah. But Keaton did at least make, uh, he had in one week, he had his wife helping build the house. And the yeah. general, he did have, you know, she holds her own in the general. Yeah. And he had some fairly decent, uh, comedians. Did he work? Who was who was the lead woman in the general? She's fantastic. I can't remember her name. In the general? In the general. I don't remember, but his Edna Proviance was his main. Uh, who also person. worked with Chaplin? Uh, she was the lead in in the kid. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, Keaton. It was Chaplin who used her. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Edna Proviance. But he used a lot of different women. Mm-hmm. Eventually, probably she was too old for him, and he used younger women, both oh, in real Chaplin. life. Because all of his wives <laughs> were 10. Yeah. <laughs> and his final wife was, I believe, 18? Yeah, look. Yeah. We're not getting into their personal lives so And he much. married is... Eugene O'Neill's daughter when she was really young. That was his, yeah. that was his last Una, wife, right? Una O'Neill, the one that lasted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I get that we can't 
judge a, a film from that era by modern standards, but it would be odd not to. We've talked about the treatment yeah. of women. We need to talk about the blackface. Yeah. Keaton. Keaton did some blackface, and that is unfortunate. I watched college just yesterday because I'd never seen it before. There's a scene where he has to go get a job. He's lost his original job, so now he's getting a job as an African-American waiter. He sees a want a wanted ad, and I'm using a proper term, which is not what's written on. It's not the N word, but it mm-hmm. says like colored colored waiters. So then all of a sudden he I, and, I, and I remember seeing and going, oh no, he's not going to. Yeah. But he comes out in full blackface, and then part of the gag is that he wipes a bunch of it off because it's hot. Th- those are those are problematic. So we're we're recognizing that those right. are in there. I don't I don't know that it ultimately costs one over the other because one of them essentially slept with children. The other one was doing <laughs> things that are wholly racist. So that in terms of yeah. terrible things done, it's kind of a watch. That's a watch. And also having a rough patch is also a watch. They both had a pretty rough patch for a while. Uh, well, uh, Buster Keaton with his drinking and yeah. Charlie Chaplin with his exile to Europe. Yeah. Yeah. But his exile thing was mostly a baloney because right. it was like the McCarthy thing before the McCarthy thing. Mm-hmm. Right. They make headlines in Congress by attacking not unknown people who might be communists, but well-known people. Yeah. So it's that's a well-known thing. Yeah. That's why they went after actors in the, in the blacklist, not after plumbers, because who cares? You know, <laughs> you don't get any headlines that way. Um, but uh, uh, well, since it was. Accepted, even though it's a terrible idea. It was very accepted uh, on Broadway. The maids would be played by a white person in blackface. Mm-hmm. I remember you, uh, uh, you can't take it with you. Uh, to look at it now, mm-hmm. we can all three sit here it's and go, weird. that's appalling. But right. at that time. So let's, since we are stepping back and looking at uh, these two guys, um, let's step back now and look at. But how the world, their impact on the world. I mean, you, it's, it's pretty much impossible to argue that Chaplin made less of an impact globally than Buster Keaton did. It feels like Chaplin was the one that the masses went crazy for. And Keaton is the one that the film buffs went crazy for. And it's yes. happening to this day. I hope, I hope the masses are still loving Chaplin. But even at the time uh, when Chaplin was so big, uh, uh, Buster caught on really big too, and it mm-hmm. wasn't just intellectuals or film buffs. It was, uh, I would say he was about 80% of Chaplin's fame. Oh, wow. Yes, because his films were making money all over the world. And That's he made about that 10, giant mansion that his uh, wife took from him. The villa, mm-hmm. which she took from him and, uh, not only got the kids, but changed their name from Keaton. That's, that's rough. Wow. And he's a famous man. He's like yeah. a chaplain. And didn't let him see them. So maybe no wonder he was drinking. Uh, I think he was a real natural, easygoing guy. He says, okay, shall I want the house too? Okay, you can have the house. And he wasn't making movies anymore. She was one of the Talmadge sisters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The yeah. least talented of the three, yeah. from what I hear. Natalie and There was a funny one, Norma. Uh, a dramatic one, and then her. I think Norma Talmadge and Natalie. Natalie was his wife. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, he had a hard, had a hard life, basically. Look what happened to him as a kid. There's something else I wanted to mention to you, because my friend James Caron, whom I became very friendly with recently, especially when I found out he knew Keaton very, very well and mm-hmm. later in Keaton's life, told me he was at Keaton's house out in the valley, I believe, in Woodland Hills, and there in the backyard playing cards or something. Keaton loved to play cards. 
and they hear a horn honking in the front of the house. <clears throat> they go outside. There's a limousine. <clears throat> I'm going to drink some water. Sure. Yep. Does it sound like Tallulah Bankhead? <laughs> <laughs> was it Tallulah Bankhead that was famous for that, that had that, uh, the, uh, now, now it's, it's coming to me that it was her, the, the, uh, Bishop bit at the, uh, I think it was at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Did you ever hear this story? Mm-hmm. The bishop's walking down the aisle. It was a famous old comedian. I don't remember who it was, but she was one of these like greats. She had a, he, the, the bishop's coming down in his miter hat and swinging the incense. And she hops up out of the aisle and goes, I love your hat, honey, but your purse is on fire. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like her. Yeah, I think it was Tallulah back because I was just talking about that. Her dialogue was like a drag queen dialogue. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. I love. She was very, very. She was very funny, and at a certain point, she got very big on radio because she could do jokes well. Yeah, her stereotype was that she was mean or put down men or whatever Mm -hmm. it was. But she was actually a good actress. She did a lot of Broadway shows. She was in, I believe, in Lifeboat that Hitchcock did. She did a number of movies. Oh, I was going to tell you, uh, Horn is honking outside Buster Keaton's house. Mm-hmm. He and Jim Karen go out front. It's a limousine. Out comes Jacques Tati. I don't know who that is. Oh, well, he's a famous uh, visual comedian who came along 25 years later. And you should look him up. Okay. Uh so he approaches them. He doesn't speak English. They don't speak French. And he kisses Buster on both cheeks and tells him, in effect, I'm sure, when I was just a little boy, I watched you and I wanted to be like you. And and so that's what I did. And then he hops in the thing and leaves. And neither of them understood the language, you know. But to me, he was not great. But if Chaplin is like a 10, he's like a 3 or 4. Mm-hmm. But he worked in sound movies with virtually not speaking. And he was a very, very good physical comic, and his gags were just like the gags in their their movies. Jacques Tati, T-A-T-I. And he made about four movies, and I don't know what mm. happened to him. But uh, his movies, they, somebody was saying, oh, wow, Chaplin's back again, or Keaton's back again. But he wasn't quite as good as them, but for someone who's hungering for some silent comedy. Yeah. So I started working on a, uh, a trajectory of what happened to silent comedy. Mm-hmm. How come when sound came in, nobody could still do silent comedy? It seemed that way. So there's Chaplin, Keaton, and those guys. And then 25 years later, Jacques Tati. Then 10 or 15 years later, is, uh, Marcel Marceau. And then you get Bill Irwin, who is mm-hmm. very, very talented at the same thing. And he told me himself he's mostly influenced by Keaton. Then recently, in this little list of every 20 or 25 years something happens with a great visual comedian, mm-hmm. I realize that Michael Richards is in that group. He is absolutely great at using his body. He is an impressive physical comedian, that guy. That's right. Yeah. And if he had lived in that time, he might mm-hmm. well have been a silent movie comedian. And he also, you talked about uh, making an exit. He knew how to make an exit and an entrance every, every time? week on Seinfeld. They sure. had to finally tell the audience, don't applaud when... Kramer comes in because it slows the show down. Yeah. They still applaud it often. <laughs> uh, and he made it different each time. It's just slightly different. He would come in and then be a little slide of the feet. You know, he'd, he'd land and then he would move. So very, very, very skillful. Well, I think if we're, if we're looking at impact and over history, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to, Hard to put Keaton over Chaplin. I think Keaton probably more innovative in film technique. 
mm-hmm. which is speaks to your well, point. Most people would uh, vote for Chaplin, right? Mm-hmm. But the hell with them. But we're not most people, <laughs> are we? No. <laughs> I have to say, I would cast a vote for Chaplin for this one, and here's why: at a very young age, watching Sesame Street. Um, the actress whose name is escaping right now who plays Maria mm-hmm. would do bits where she dressed up as Chaplin. Right. So that was programmed into my youth was mm-hmm. Chaplin as a character, as that character right. of the tramp. Um, well, I think we have to look at leg- this kind of legacy thing as one criteria though. And it's a huge one that Chaplin is definitely the more you're going to walk down Hollywood Boulevard and you're more likely to see a poster with Chaplin on it than with yeah, Buster Keaton absolutely. on it. Absolutely. Um, but there's something about, for me, there's something about the acting style of Buster Keaton, not the physical stuff, but just the acting of it. And it's, that goes back to that story of him, uh, taking the camera home with Fatty Arbuckle and looking at how a camera works. Yeah. And I think it's one of those, one of those things that aside from, you know, learning that his stone face got bigger laughs when he was a kid, there was something it, maybe this is just me reading too much into it, but it seems like what Buster Keaton figured out was, oh, um, this is what you do for this new medium. What Chaplin did was incredible, incredible physical comedy that just happened to come along at the right time for uh, a great physical music hall or vaudeville comedian. What Ke- What it seems like Keaton did was... He was an early adopter of Chaplin bent the medium to what he did. Keaton took the medium and figured out what he could do with it. And even it even goes down to just acting style like, oh, I see how close a camera can get. I don't have to be big because this is going I don't have to do anything even. And an audience is going to read into that. Whereas on a stage, if you're the 2000th seat in the back. You have to play chap for Chaplin. He, that's what he's used to. He's got to play big. And, and Chaplin's first thing in this country was a night in an English music hall, which mm-hmm. he, in which he sat in the box and played a drunk and then he eventually jumped down on the stage. Mm-hmm. But he would make fun of people in the aisles and annoy them and bug them. And, and he was doing basically Chaplin-esque things, mm-hmm. maybe with dialogue, maybe not. But he was the, the drunk at the, it was like an opera. And he would just get in the way like he always did. And in the second, the first movie he made, uh, the first movie he made, uh, he wasn't playing the tramp, but the second movie was called Kids Auto Race at Venice. <laughs> and they heard about a, an auto race, a little made of, made out of wood, you know, and kids make their yeah. own little yeah. auto race. He went down to Venice. What they would do is hear about an event and they would go there and that would become the movie. The, the story of the event was the movie and his job was to interrupt what was happening. That I was, that is, I laughed when you mentioned that movie because I forgot those bits. It's just, he just yeah, went it's out. It's just Chaplin trying to get in front of the camera that's shooting the kid on yeah. the races. And they, and it is, so and they simple. probably didn't know he was not just a tramp. Yeah. Oh, because man. The, I forgot about how it wasn't like they're looking for cameras. He was just interrupting everything and, and playing with the onlookers and getting mm-hmm. in the way of the things. And I, I haven't seen it for many years, but that was his first tramp. And the other one, it was called, I uh, forget what it was called, but he, he wore kind of a, oh, a kind of a group, drooping mustache. And he had a, a tailcoat with a Chesterfield collar. Mm-hmm. And he was a dandy in this first movie. And then he adopted this tramp character. Well, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. 
He, yeah, we, we, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, the, some of the great things that Charlie Chaplin did. These are his first, uh, kid auto races and, um, I don't remember what the other one was called, the very first one, but, uh, 1 a.m. we mentioned the pawn shop, uh, him <laughs> tearing a clock apart and then telling the gentleman who brought in the clock, I'm not taking this clock. It's broken. Yeah. Which, and he put a stethoscope to it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's lunacy. Uh, one of my all-time favorites is uh, The Immigrant. That, to me, is such a quintessentially American movie. Uh, it is a beautiful satire with him kicking the customs guards who he feels are disrespecting his dignity. Um, and it's just this... It's quite a wonderful movie. This run of the, the kid that he made, his first feature with Jackie Coogan... Um, yeah, that was a, a sort of a groundbreaking film, really. The, the in sadness, what way? The, not only the comedy, but how sad it all was. It was like melodrama. He was the first. Yeah. I, I've heard. Yeah, let's talk about this because um, I know you said you have this. You enjoy the deadpan. Um, does pathos play a part in that? Well, he knew how to use uh, pathos. You know, if you'll think of him at the end of uh, the one where he's. Uh, Touching his lips and he's the blind girl is inside. Mm-hmm. In city lights. In city yeah. lights. Yeah. Uh, city lights. Yeah. Well, he certainly knew how to do pathos and play it next to broad comedy. Mm-hmm. So he was very good at that. I just, I found Buster's more, uh, less maudlin. You know, mm-hmm. if you wanted to look at it a certain way, you could say Chaplin's great at pathos and you could say it's maudlin. Yeah. Well, he was also, he was a, a ham. He had that Victorian sentimentality to his work that, that's right. Ch- that Keaton just had his, no, 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 this, and that comes, again, that's what it comes back to me is in a funny way, Buster, what to do in front of a camera. Buster didn't aim as high as he did say in civil, in the mm-hmm. city lights. He was aiming high to have a comedy with a lot of drama and a lot of pathos. Buster's uh, stories are a lot simpler. Well, but I mean, you were mentioning what a good actor he was, and I always think of that when I see him. Mm-hmm. And and since most people think a slapstick comedian is always doing physical things, most of his movies start so simple you can't believe it. Oh yeah, he leaves home and it's raining, and he's got an umbrella with his mother. Mm-hmm. I forget which movie it is. College, uh, yeah, yeah, and it gets flipped and upside it, down. His they're just like tiny, tiny little takes, you know, or him just standing in line at a bread line. But he happens to accidentally stand behind two mannequins. And as the breadline keeps moving, he just stands there and impatiently waits. But he's being polite and not cutting in line. And the great moment in that moment is uh, at one point he he imagines one of the mannequins moved forward in the line. And he, and he <laughs> yeah. jumps up and he goes, oh. And you think for a split second, he's just realized that they're mannequins. Oh, never mind. He just thought one of them moved when he, he didn't. Thought, he thought one of them moved. I have to say... While you guys are making good points, for, for <laughs> I, me, I know what a huge Chaplin fan you are. The, the reason why is I like that I like that he's reaching higher. I like mm-hmm. that his films overall are richer in emotion. I mean, the beginning of the kid is a card that says a story that will bring you a smile and maybe a tear, and the ending is completely bizarre. Oh, I bawled the whole the kid. like angel thing that he imagines and then winds up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and not, those not to spoil it, but the angels and also where the kid lived is in. Is down in La Brea where he had his studio. The exterior of those little buildings in his studio, mm-hmm. little brick buildings, and they doubled often in his movies as a neighborhood. So that's a, and then now that's the uh, Muppet Studio. Yeah, so it right. had which has Kermit. Bef- in before the, that, uh, it was uh, uh, Coppola's had it for a few years. Man. Wow, 
Zoetron. All we got to do is get that studio, Hal, and we're going to be legends. That's it. Let's go buy that studio. Podcasting studio. Uh, well, anyway, no, they're, they both have their values, but I think, mm-hmm. uh, mine is just an emotional connection with, uh, with him, but don't think for a minute I don't love what Chaplin accomplished because sure. they were great. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, Limelight was a little maudlin. Yeah. Chaplin does yes. have the bigger, his his golden age, like we were talking about before, 1917 through 1940, where Keaton's golden age was really just 1920 to 28. He did all of this. He was Beatles style. He did this fast. I think he did uh, eight features, maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know for sure. So but, his uh, Chaplin did grades. the Lady from Hong Kong or something, and that was terrible with Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren. Chaplin had, Chaplin had a rough and the go. The King of yeah. New York, I mean, he reached a certain point where mm-hmm. doing a sound movie, he didn't really do it well. Right. Yeah. He always showed his actors how to do everything because he was a genius and mm-hmm. they always did it. He'd act out the parts for the actresses, act out the parts for the villains. But to do that with Brando. Right. And Sophia. Yeah, to point to Brando and, and tell Brando him how to do a bit. Was, Probably never a satirist or. <laughs> yeah. He may be many things. How am I going to make this real though? <laughs> this is the guy who cut the pockets out of his jeans in Sweetcarnate of Desire <laughs> because he thought his character wanted to feel himself. Yeah. Which, uh, was the same character I played from the ages of 14 to 18. Look. <laughs> uh, but still do, I hear. Still do. Um, you know what? It's always ready for, no- there's always a revival around the corner. <clears throat> One of my favorite jokes from Vaudeville is, from burlesque as a comics standing, uh, supposedly on a street corner and he's bouncing on his toes and he has his hands in his pockets and he's kind of, as he bounces his, uh, his pelvis goes forward. And that's the kind of a look it is. Mm-hmm. This jaunty, jaunty, jolly as Mel Brooks would say. And a guy comes along and says, what are you doing? He says, uh, nothing. I'm just hanging around. You can't just hang around in the today's world. You're going to do something. You got a job where you work. I don't work. I don't have a job. Well, you got to have some kind of. Well, I, I, uh, I work for my help. My father. What does he do? Nothing. It was like nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> sure. I did this routine in college with Don Knotts because I got it from burlesque. And uh, but at some point he says, uh, um, "Here you are, a grown man. You don't have a job. Do you have a family? No family. You don't have a wife. No. I mean, you're worth nothing. You waste your time. Why should you be here on earth? You're standing here with your hands in your pockets." And the guy said, who's got pockets? <laughs> and the movement he's making is translated as not pockets. Yes. <laughs> Did you say that, uh, you and Don Knotts used to do that routine in college? Yeah. He was, he was in my college. He was a senior. I was a freshman. What college was this? West Virginia University. And already he was an accomplished comedian because when he was drafted, he told them that he had been an entertainer as a kid mm-hmm. from 14 or so. In fact, he had a ventriloquist dummy. And he also um, did magic tricks. He could juggle. I learned this later after he got back. But in the Navy, in the Army, they luckily assigned him to special services, which means they entertained people mm-hmm. for two years in the Army. USO show kind of thing? Yeah. And there was a, a guy who became a movie actor later named Mickey Shaughnessy, who was a big guy. And they put them together because they were like Mutt and Jeff. <laughs> sure. But for two years, he <laughs> honed his craft as a comedian. Man. Wow. That is, if you're going to get drafted, that's the way to get drafted. Yeah. So, uh, 
we were both interested in uh, comedy sketches and seeing comics, but there weren't many people coming through West Virginia in clubs or anything. So uh, we go to Pittsburgh about 40 minutes away, just over the border, mm-hmm. and we go to the burlesque house. And nobody at, at, in, in, in school would think we were going there to see the comics. They'd say, yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> sure, you're ready for the Playboy articles. for the articles. Yeah. Yeah. But they really were pretty boring, these strippers in those days. They had no drama, you know, mm-hmm. compare them to a pole dancer now. There were nothing, but we'd watch the comics. And on the way home, between the two of us, we'd reconstruct the sketch and write it. Because if I didn't remember what joke, he'd remember it. We had pretty much had the whole thing. And then we would do it at fraternities. Mm-hmm. Because even though they weren't really filthy or anything, they were suggestive, so you wouldn't do it to a mixed crowd. But, sure. uh, but we did a, quite a few of those things. And he wrote lyrics, too. He was in uh musicals in school and he'd write lyrics or somebody writing the melodies wow. and he was in a lot of plays and and so I know him just for that one uh one year. But uh That sounds like a fun year. Like yeah. well, roll roll to some Pittsburgh burlesques with Paul Dooley and Don Knotts. It sounds also, like a fun weekend. He also, had a very yeah. he had a high voice. Mm-hmm. He was married in college to a different woman than he had later named Kay. I'd call up and I'd say, uh oh, hi is Don there? So he'd say, hello. I'd say, is Don there? He said, this is Don. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was Kay. <laughs> but I did it every time I called Of course. Him. By the way, uh, my year with Don Knotts is a great name for <laughs> just a play. Uh, so the first thing you showed me mm-hmm. was this thing. You take a coin like a quarter, mm-hmm. and you make this move here, and you take it in your hand, and you go over there, and it's gone. And vintage, called, vintage magic. Yeah. It's called the French drop, but you would never mention the word drop, or they'd know you're dropping it. Sure. But, you know, what sells it is not doing like that, but putting a thumb through, because you feel if the thumb is in there unconsciously, that that thing is... That's going to catch say it. That you, you drop it in your palm and you make that move. And uh, I learned that from him. Uh, that was, I went away that, visual, that visual magic trick we just saw is as amazing as this mural. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys. How did you like that, folks? <laughs> um, so I went away and practiced 50 times and came back. He said, well, you're not supposed to do it better than me. <laughs> but also, he was, he could juggle, and uh, I he, got a lot of uh, ideas from him. He's an amazing performer. Um, and I think in the tradition of Chaplin and Keaton and what they did, not so much as, as performers, but because he was a brilliant physical performer and no one could do a take like Don Knotts, but also um, in these long takes. That's one thing that was great about the Andy Griffith show, I thought, was that their scenes were long and they breathed and their takes were long. They would do masters or I mean, just do a wide shot or mm-hmm. a two shot and not keep cutting, cutting, yeah. cutting, cutting. And that's, that goes back to these two guys. And that was a beautiful thing about, uh, what's the, the old line? Is it comedy happens in a wide shot? <laughs> uh, I'd heard that and I it loved it. It's better off because you can use your whole body. Yeah. You wouldn't want too many close ups. You've got Chaplin and Keaton. Sure. Their yeah. body's part of it. Years and years ago, maybe when Steve Allen did it tonight, your friend mm-hmm. Astaire came on and the TV was new. They was learning how to be TV. So Fred Astaire is doing a dance on the Steve Allen show and the tonight show. And the camera would cut to his, the bus shot, him and his shoulders. Oh, come then on. go back to the wide, then come into a tight. He never needed the tight. No. Yeah. Unless he up. needed a break, then he could just stop dancing for a second. <laughs> But uh, you don't want to watch with Fred Astaire. Never watch anything but the whole body. Yeah, right. he is his whole body. I mean, I thought, what are they cutting in for? Even then, I didn't know what cutting in was. But I yeah. said, why show a close up? If anything, show his feet. Right. Just do a close up of his <laughs> yeah. feet the whole time. 
Anyway, then you wouldn't that's be when sure they were just him. learning that every, <laughs> yeah. if they didn't change the shot every few seconds, the audience would get bored. So right. That's what they did. Welcome to the Texaco All Foot Review. <laughs> Can you guess this celebrity? Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. And together we present Schmanners. It's extraordinary etiquette. For ordinary occasions. We explain the historical significance of everyday etiquette topics, then answer your questions relating to modern life. So join us weekly on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. No RSVP required. Check out Schmanners. Schmanners, Schmanners. Get it? SF Sketchfest is just around the corner, January 11th to 28th, and there will be plenty of Max Fun shows there to represent. We're bringing Judge John Hodgman on the 11th, Jordan Jesse Go with special guest Andy Richter on the 12th, Schmanners on the 14th, We Got This with Mark and Howe also on the 14th, The Greatest Generation and Friendly Fire Podcast Super Show on the 17th, Pop Rocket host Guy Branham's talk show The Game Show on the 19th, and One Bad Mother on the 21st. You can learn more about these shows and get tickets at MaximumFun.org slash SFSketchFest18. Get your tickets now. Um, well, gentlemen, we're going to have to pick a winner here. Uh, as this show uh, is, we are required to make a decision once and for all, for all time, for all people. Can't we have a stalemate? Uh, we cannot. We've never, we've never had a stalemate on this show. L- let me, uh, let me. But uh, it feels like, uh, I feels like. wager a guess here. All right. I want to see if you're agreeing. Uh, maybe with I me. should break the tie. I feel like you are saying it should be a stalemate because. No, no it should be Keaton. All because right. you love, yeah. <laughs> because you love Buster Keaton. Yeah. But you feel that maybe what is your favorite is not necessarily the best head to head. Am I wrong? Well, it's hard to separate that if a guy it is. hits you emotionally and uh, yeah. you admire his style. And it doesn't matter if one guy made 12 features and one guy made nine features. Sure. it's. Uh, I vote for Keaton. You vote for Keaton. And you guys can disagree, but, you know, there's the door. <laughs> I don't know if you can see this, listeners, but that door is it's huge. Painted. So it's beautiful. Painted. It's actually just a door painted on a wall. Yeah. It would hurt to go through Which... Here's the thing, a door painted on a wall. I'm not sure that Chaplin could walk through, but a door painted on a wall, Buster Keaton could paint that door and then walk through it. Yeah. Well, one of the old gags in vaudeville, I've seen it done, I think, both by Chaplin, Keaton, Laurel and Hardy, and Evan Costello, is you draw a picture of a hook on the wall and mm-hmm. hang your hat on it. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. That's got to be a centuries old. Oh, yeah. Or uh, just stick your cane to the wall and then hang your hat on the on the crook of your cane. Well, B- Buster Keaton did those beer commercials where he would draw the keg and draw a spigot on it and then pour beer out yeah. of it into a glass. So he would do his own bits. I'll, I'm going to vote for Chaplin, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say Mark. Yeah. Don't, I, are you going to let Paul bully you? <laughs> at this table in his home. So this is tough. This is tough for me. It's rare that it comes down to one person's decision. I, well, I guess it's rare that it comes well, down to my is, decision. It is. Well, I think we should agree. Right. Might be a flag on, on the play here, right? Are you intractable? You will not move off of Buster Keaton. Only if you guys are intractable. Uh, I have. I realized in this. I came into this and have always been throughout my life a Charlie Chaplin fan. Um, I had never really delved into Buster Keaton as much until I started prepping for this episode. And in so doing, um, 
I think that Charlie Chaplin is like W.C. Field said, the greatest, uh, uh, the damn ballet dancer. Uh, and his physical, what he could do physically was mind blowing and amazing and beautiful and heartbreaking and the pathos that he brought. But for me, it's the deciding factor for me is that Buster Keaton did it for a new medium that he, he, took film further. I think he took film further than Charlie Chaplin did. I think Charlie Chaplin took Charlie Chaplin very far, but I think Buster Keaton took film further. So interesting that it would come down to who pushes the medium further. Just because in my mind, here's mm-hmm. the, here's where I've had trouble separating is I think of the satirical work that Chaplin did mm-hmm. and the importance of that, uh, the importance yeah. of modern times, the importance of the gold rush, it's certainly the importance of the great dictator. And I guess I, it's, it really is. This is like chocolate that is 69% cacao versus chocolate that is 69.5% cacao. They're both brilliant in their own way. Right. However, I recognize at this table. <laughs> Wait, but you have in the past said that, uh, dark chocolate tasted like homework. Some, no, you said that. <laughs> Oh, did I say that? Yeah, I knew one of us did. It's too funny I for don't me to have to said show. it. It was you. Um. Uh, <laughs> I'm willing to cede to Buster Keaton. I feel like, as wonderful as Charlie Chaplin is, I feel like Buster Keaton is in a head-to-head matchup, which, by the way, no one should ever do, and no one will ever do again now that we have done it officially once and for all. In a lot of ways, what we do is a public service. Yeah, it's the most important thing. People don't want to make these hard decisions, no. but we do it for them. That's right. And that's why we win this episode. Wait, no, Hal, you nope. still have to do it. All right, fine. People of the world, <laughs> first of all, for those of you who are not familiar with the great comedians of the silent era, why not start with some Buster Keaton and some Charlie Chaplin, the two grandmasters of it all, and you can find... On YouTube, you can go on Amazon. You can find their work everywhere. And it's it's worth watching their shorts and their feature-length films. And Chaplin is the name that most people know. Nobody – Robert Downey Jr. didn't play Buster Keaton. But in no, but French Donald Stewart did. did. But Donald Connor Donald Connor did. Did you yes. see the play, by the way, um, Stoneface? Any guys uh, see yes. this? With French Stewart? Yes. Yeah, I saw Fantastic. it. I'd ever hear at the Falcon Theater. I didn't even know. It was great. French Stewart played Buster Keaton in a play. I yeah. saw it at the uh, Pasadena Playhouse. All right, I'm just getting blown away here. Yeah. The point <laughs> being, in this head-to-head battle that nobody ever thought, we never thought it would come to this, but now it's settled. You don't have to have this argument with people anymore. You just say, whoever's calling right now, yes, hello. Buster Keaton is better than Charlie Chaplin. We're oh, going to say it. Buster Keaton's the best. It's hard to say you feel, either is better. You feel good about yeah. that, Mark? No. You feel good? I hope, I, that's, Paul. I hope that's not Chaplin. <laughs> that's the ghost of Keaton saying, good job. Hey, I just came over from the theater. By the way, if the if the subject were which would be a scarier ghost, the answer would be Buster Keaton. That would be the scariest ghost. That stone face just floating by the light bulb. No <laughs> ghost like can keep him away. For my one-man show, when I, I wanted to say that People at that theater said they sometimes saw the ghost of Keaton. I said to Donovan, who's my editor, he's a great video editor as well as my friend and is a comedian himself, uh, find a picture online out of the many, many pictures of Keaton who looks a little bit like he's a ghost. We found a picture from a film, and I can't even remember what the film might have been, but I think he's holding a, a magic uh, uh, crystal ball. Mm-hmm. So it looks like the light's coming up like this. 
we just cropped out the magic, uh, the uh, crystal ball, and he looks like lights coming. Just up. Just the ghost of Buster. <laughs> it looks Keaton. like a ghost, and I put it in the show. Oh man! Well, there you go. The the silent ghost himself. The stone, the ghost stone face. Stone face. I'm losing it. Stone face ghost. Point I want to hear a couple of moments of trivia. Please. Yes. Please. I not only did a commercial with Buster Keaton for two days, I shook hands with Chaplin. Really? And I made a comedy album with Cassius Clay. What comedy album did you make with Cassius Clay? Was this the not yet Tooth the, Decay? Uh, it's called I Am the Greatest. Oh. And uh, naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course. And my guess is that he was, William Morris glommed onto him because if they can get someone like that, they can handle him. If he's a movie star, sure. if he writes a book, so it's an all And he seems like the type of guy that's going to go into all of those media. Yeah. yeah. I once signed a contract with him just out of Second City, but it said something about they, uh, that I belong to them basically for mm-hmm. any medium yet to be invented. <laughs> Because they had so much trouble with people on radio. Right. But you don't have me for television. So now they put in their con- any yeah. medium yet to be invented. And they've now added in perpetuity throughout the universe. That's right. Yeah. Universe. That's right. Thanks, Rick Kent, for In case that. there's a new medium yeah. on Mars or something. Mm-hmm. Well, you anyway, know, so that, that I think uh, they had a lot of comedy writers at William Morris. They had uh, Catches Clay. They said, hey, let's put some of our guys to work for him. And, and so they got three people from Second City. Uh, Minor Cole, myself, and Eugene uh, Trubnik, and we played the sketches with him. And a lot of them are like Shakespeare because he liked to do flowery poetry. Yeah. Is this available still? Is this I don't print? know, but uh, uh, the writer called me up. I hadn't heard from him many, 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 25 years. He said, it just put it on a on a, a CD. I'll send you one. So I have it somewhere, but I couldn't locate it right now. Wow. Well, well, everybody go on a scavenger hunt. Here's We're going to find this out. Chaplin was in, he came to New York on his way to Hollywood to finally get his Lifetime Achievement Award. So it was 77? No longer persona non grata. Mm-hmm. And he stopped in New York. Well, I was working at the, I don't know if you know this, but I created the electric company. I was the We did fire. know this. We were yes. talking about it in the car on the way yes, over. We were. And we're so big a, electric company fans. There was a lady there who, uh, who worked there, an older lady. She's about 65 or so. And she was an archivist. And she would get us certain stock shots or film clips and things if we needed them. So she says, I'm going to a Chaplin film tonight at Lincoln Center, which is across the street from our offices. You want to go? I said, sure. She said, it's the kid and, uh, and everybody's going. It's going to be a big thing at Lincoln Center. So I went and I'm sitting there waiting for the film to start. And I hear the audience buzzing. Didn't quite understand it. And then a man with white hair walked in and got in one of the boxes. Realized that's the man himself. Wow. Wow. When the show is over, she said to me, he's going over to the mayor's house and I have a ticket for a reception at the, at Mayor Lindsay's house in, um, in New York. And so I went and I shook hands with him and I, uh, I'm walking along the line, shaking hands with the mayor and his wife, my ears on chaplain. And he says the same thing to everybody I heard. How nice of you to say. So whatever they said to him, obviously that worked. I love your films. And nice of you to say. You married young women. How nice of you to say. <laughs> but anyway, it was a big thrill, even though it was uh, only one moment with a brush with greatness, as well, uh, Letterman used to say. Well, thank you for this brush with greatness to get to sit down and talk so with which you about one of this us topic. Is great? Oh, that's you, Paul. Oh, okay. Hal, he's fine. I he's mean, fine. he's look. If it was, he's if we were doing great. Paul Dooley versus Hal Lublin, yeah, it would be a tough call. Hal, it would be a tough. Call. I don't think it would Buster. be. <laughs> In that case, we'd put Buster Keaton. Yeah, and we pick Buster, Buster Keaton. Keaton again. The answer is still Buster Keaton. Well, it's been a pleasure, yeah. guys. Yeah, you've you've done it all, Paul. You. 
including working with me on public radio. A lot of radio. Yeah, we did a lot of radio together. Yeah. But uh, what was that character you always did? It was kind of a seemed like a fourteen year old. Oh, nerd. Jimmy DePetro. Jimmy DePetro. Yeah, <laughs> I was just talking with uh, David Feldman, whose show it was about that. But, two uh, years older than Stan Laurel. Two years older. Yeah, Jimmy DePetro is like well, by the five. Way, another. You can't see it on radio, but uh, if we're off the air, uh, thank you. There you have it. The answer is Buster Keaton asked and answered. This topic is settled, but there's so many others, and we want you to send them to us. So email us at we got this podcast at gmail.com or go to our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash we got this podcast. Or check us out on Twitter uh, at we got this tweets or visit the Maximum Fun subreddit. As always, thanks to our musicians, Jonathan Dinerstein and Mike Furman, for our score and theme song, respectively. Thank you to producer Ken Plume, researcher Kate McManus, graphic designer Uri Kelman, and QA engineer Jen Alba. And, of course, to you, our listeners. For Hal Loveland, I'm Mark Gagliardi. For Mark Gagliardi, I'm Hal Loveland. And don't worry, everybody. We got this. We got this. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.